Hi, it's Amy Siskind of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 19 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 99 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.org, and corresponds to the week ended October 7, 2018. Welcome. This was another historic week. I want to open up the podcast with a quote from an article that was written by Marsha Gessen in November 2016. It's actually an article I read that was in the New York Review of Books. That was one of the articles that prompted me to start writing things down and come up with the idea for doing the weekly list. Um, I'm quoting Marsha here. Quote, there is little doubt that Trump will appoint someone who will cause the court to veer to the right. There is also the risk that it might be someone who will wreak havoc with the very culture of the high court. Prescient indeed. You can find that article by Masha on the website, theweeklylist.org under resources. And bookmarking that as we got into this week, an article that also came out in the New York Review of Books by Christopher Browning in a piece called The Suffocation of Democracy. Browning compares Mitch McConnell to the Hitler era and German President Paul von Hindenburg, who he calls both grave diggers of democracy. So bookending those two stories, I want to talk about this week in a complete breakdown of norms in our process of nominating Trump's second pick to the Supreme Court and what that means. It was a dark week for many in our country, especially for the women in our country, many of whom are survivors of sexual assault and felt like their voices were not heard or silenced or not believed or disparaged. This week was, I guess, a a rise of a new battle, which I'll call the Me Too movement versus the He Too movement, which Trump seemed to come up with this week, saying that white men are victims of false claims and you better watch out for your sons. And he was the voice to protect white men. But continuing with the way that Kavanaugh operated in the Senate hearing last week, being outright belligerent and angry and particularly had an amount of venom for women senators last week. Trump this week as well continued to overtly act out against women. This week, women reporters, we're going to talk about that. And then I just want to note before we get started, the media. I've just noticed, especially this week, having to read several sources, trying to get to the facts. I think our media this week is having a hard time getting to the truth. For example, the number of witnesses that were interviewed by the FBI, the Washington Post and the New York Times had two different versions, which is unusual. But just as a broad sense, there was a lot of misreporting this week or mischaracterization of things that were happening. There's been a harder time, I observed this week in the media with them pointing out things from above as opposed to just taking them in and repeating them. For example, a theme that the Republicans seem to brand as part of this confirmation process was to say that Dr. Ford, something indeed horrible happened to her, but it wasn't Brett Kavanaugh. They repeated that again and again and again until their supporters repeated that back. Susan Collins also used that same line in her speech that we're going to speak about. But at no time did our media push back on that notion to say, isn't that sexist to say that a woman can't trust her own mind or recollection? There was a lot of that. So just keep an eye on things with the media. Again, I I believe they're having a hard time covering things than what is increasingly an authoritarian regime. They're trying to cover Trump as if he's George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan or a typical Republican, and he is anything but. As we're about to learn, I want to start off this week. There was a a Pew Research poll that came out this week that found America's global image has plummeted under Trump amid widespread opposition to his regime's policies and a widely shared lack of confidence in his leadership abilities. The poll finds that the world has significant concerns about America's role in world affairs, 
citing isolationism and the U.S. doing less to help solve major global challenges. American soft power is waning as well. Trump polled the lowest among leaders of major powers, with 70% of those surveyed in 25 countries saying they have no confidence in him to do the right thing regarding world affairs. Just 27% have confidence. So Trump was the lowest. Angela Merkel, who I've mentioned before in this podcast, I sort of view as the new leader of the free world, um, had approval in the 50s as opposed to Trump's 27. And she was the leader amongst that pack of, of major world powers. So our global influence is waning. I also just want to open up as we opened up this week with this really bizarre quote by Trump at his speech in West Virginia last Saturday night. I want to point this out not only in its bizarreness, but also in the fact that it got lost so quickly and that in normal times we would be talking about this for months. When Trump was speaking about North Korea at his speech in West Virginia, he started off, he said, being really tough with Kim Jong-un. But then, and I'm going to quote here, this is Trump's words, then we fell in love. Okay, no, really. He wrote me beautiful letters and they're great letters. And then we fell in love. Yes, that happened. And yes, by the next morning, it was forgotten in the chaos of what started this week, which was the FBI investigation, as was called for last week, of allegations against Kavanaugh. There had been several. On Saturday, NBC News reported that the White House Counsel Office has imposed severe limitations to the FBI. The probe will not include interviewing Kavanaugh's third accuser, Julie Swetnick. The FBI will also not interview Kavanaugh's Yale's classmates about alleged excessive drinking or his high school classmates about sexual references in his yearbook to see if witnesses could contradict his Senate testimony. NBC News reported just four people will be interviewed. Mark Judge, Leyland Kaser, who is a high school friend of Ford, who said she attended the party but was not told of the assault. P.J. Smythe, another party guest, and Deborah Ramirez. So that's where we started the week. The Wall Street Journal reported the investigation is being, quote, tightly controlled by the White House, and the FBI will not have free reign to pursue all potential leads. However, on Saturday night, Trump tweeted, quote, NBC News incorrectly reported, in parentheses, as usual, that I was limiting the FBI investigation. And Trump added, quote, I want them to interview whoever they deem appropriate at their their discretion. So when I talk about the confusion in the media, so much of it is we're being told one thing by Trump when he speaks to reporters, and then it's exact opposite of what he's doing in reality. And our media has to find the truth behind the words and what's actually happening. On Sunday, NBC News reported that despite Trump's tweet, the FBI has received no new instructions from the White House about changing the limitations on the investigation. Obviously, NBC News is getting this information from people in the FBI who want us to know they're not able to do their job. On Sunday, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is the ranking Democrat on this, Senate Judiciary Committee sent a letter to the White House counsel Don McGahn and FBI Director Christopher Wray requesting a copy of written directives the White House sent to the FBI to clear this up. On Sunday, Republican Tom Cotton told Face the Nation that Feinstein and her staff will be investigated over leaked Ford letters. Feinstein repeated Monday that she and her staff did not leak the letter. On Sunday, Kellyanne Conway said on State of the Union that she too was a victim of sexual assault, then seemed to use her admission to support Kavanaugh, saying, quote, you have to be responsible for your own conduct. (sighs) On Monday, Trump told reporters he had instructed McGahn to have the FBI carry out an open investigation. So again, Trump contradicting what is happening with a caveat that the inquiry should accommodate the desires of the Senate Republicans. Trump said he wanted a, quote, comprehensive FBI investigation and had no problem if the FBI questioned Kavanaugh or even Swetnick. 
Trump said he accepted Kavanaugh's denials, calling confirmation process deeply unfair. On Monday, the Portland Press-Herald said Senator Susan Collins wants the FBI to investigate the allegations brought by Julie Swetnick and not limit the scope of its investigation to those raised at the Senate hearing. The editorial boards of two major main newspapers spoke out against Kavanaugh. The Portland Herald Press editorial board wrote, he doesn't belong on the Supreme Court, and the Bangor Daily News called Kavanaugh unfit. On Sunday, CNN reported the FBI spoke to Deborah Ramirez on Sunday, and she provided them with names of witnesses. On Tuesday, her attorney, John Clune, said none of the 20 witnesses had been contacted that had Deborah Ramirez had given the FBI. On Sunday, the New Yorker reported the attorney for Elizabeth Razor, the college girlfriend of Mark Judge, who had... Uh, Last week, we talked about she had stories he had told her in confidence about his shame around uh, being part of a group of men having sex with a woman, that she had repeatedly tried to contact the Senate Judiciary Committee and FBI, saying she would like to speak to them, but has not heard back. Now, this next story to me was the most important story of the week in terms of things that just got lost in the chaos relating to this Kavanaugh nomination but essentially this is witness tampering. On Monday, NBC News reported in the days leading up to Ramirez's allegations becoming public in the New Yorker, Kavanaugh and his team surreptitiously communicated with his Yale classmates about refuting the story. Carrie Burcham, a Yale classmate of Kavanaugh and Ramirez, said she has tried to get the messages to the FBI but has not heard back. Burcham emailed the FBI agent J.C. McDonald along with screenshots of texts. In text messages between Burcham and Karen Yarosavage, both friends of Kavanaugh, Yarosavage and Kavanaugh asked her, said Kavanaugh asked her to go on the record in his defense. Texts show Kavanaugh tried to get copies of a photo from a 1997 wedding of Yale classmates that both he and Ramirez attended in order to show they were at the same event and in hopes of discrediting her allegations. This was again before the story came out. Burcham said Ramirez tried to avoid Kavanaugh at that wedding and instead she clung to me. Kavanaugh told the Senate Judiciary Committee under oath that the first time he heard of Ramirez's allegations was when he read the New Yorker article that was published on September 23rd. But here we have one, and also in this episode, we're going to discuss a second example of Yale classmates saying they were reached out to by Kavanaugh or his surrogates ahead of that story coming out. A spokesman for the Judiciary Committee Chair, Senate Chuck Grassley, said that the texts, quote, do not appear relevant or contradictory to the Kavanaugh's testimony, which is a lie. And he called it another last-ditch effort to derail the nomination by Democrats. So that was the politicization of, of trying to get to the truth. Now we're going to weave in and out of the Kavanaugh story. But before we get back to it, I want to talk about everyday racism in this week's list. On Monday, the New York Times reported in recent weeks, hundreds of migrant children at shelters from Kansas City, excuse me, from Kansas to New York have been roused in the middle of the night and clandestinely transported to a tent city in West Texas. The population of migrant children has grown fivefold since last year. Private foster homes and shelters that sleep two to three in a room and provide formal schooling and legal representation are overburdened. The children are now in groups in these 10 cities of 20 split by gender and have no formal schooling and limited legal representation. The 10 cities are unregulated except for guidelines created by the Department of Health and Human Services. And this broke my heart a little. The children wore belts etched in pen with phone numbers for their emergency contacts as they were transported. Some shelter staff members cried for fear of what was in store for migrant children being moved to tent cities. 
On Tuesday, NBC News reported a report by the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General found, quote, DHS was not fully prepared to implement the administration's zero tolerance policy or to deal with some of its after effects. Immigration law allows Customs and Border Protection to hold unaccompanied children for up to 72 hours. The report found one-fifth of the children were held for at least five days and one even longer. The report also found that while the Trump regime urged asylum seekers to come through ports of entry, overwhelmed facilities likely resulted in additional illegal border crossings. And here's a story that's another example of the importance of our judicial branch, which we are gradually losing, uh, being the only one that is putting a check and balance on Trump. On Wednesday, a federal judge in California temporarily blocked the Trump regime from terminating temporary protected status for hundreds of thousands of immigrants, who by the way, are people of color, from Sudan, El Salvador, Haiti, and Nicaragua. On Wednesday, CNN reported a surprise DHS Inspector General visit to a privately run California ICE detention facility, found nooses hanging in cells, misuse of solitary confinement, and delayed medical care. The facility is run by GEO GEO Group, a private prison contractor that runs a number of large immigrant detention centers. And when I read that, I thought, ding, 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 that rings a bell from somewhere. So I went to the Weekly List website, searched uh, the old list under GEO, and sure enough, GEO donated $250,000 to a pro-Trump super PAC and hired two former aides of Attorney General Jeff Sessions in week 50. Okay, continuing. Beverly Goldstein, a Republican candidate for Congress in Ohio, in a tweet blamed passage of an ordinance banning LGBTQ discrimination on the, quote, illiteracy of black voters who couldn't read that, apparently. Republicans in New York are referring to Anthony Delgado, an African-American congressional candidate who is a Rhodes Scholar and Harvard Law graduate as a, quote, big city rapper in political attack ads. Linda, Linda Dwyer was arrested in a Colorado grocery store after another patron, Camira Trent, called the police to report that Dwyer was harassing two Mexican women in the grocery store for speaking Spanish. On Saturday, for the second time in the last 18 months, the Jewish Community Center of Northern Virginia was vandalized. 19 swastikas were painted on the center. This broke my heart a little. The president of the center said, quote, this is getting to be a regular thing. It's in the air all around us, in the country all around us. And he said, expressions of support are tinged with fatigue. That really concerns me. Now I want to talk about corruption and kleptocracy in the Trump regime. On Sunday, the Washington Post reported the Trump regime announced it will sue California in an effort to block that state's new net neutrality law, which has been described by experts as the toughest ever enacted in the U.S. Just hours after California's proposal became law, senior, senior Justice Department officials told the Washington Post they will sue on grounds that the federal government has the exclusive power to regulate net neutrality. So they don't want access to information. On Wednesday, FEMA sent a presidential alert via a text message. Some of us got three, I got three. One of the people that uh, follows me on Twitter got 11. Several people got zero, but what can we say? Uh, it was the a presidential alert via text message. According to FEMA, unlike emergency alerts and Amber alerts, in case you tried, these presidential alerts cannot be turned off. The system was originally put in place by George W. Bush for radio and TV and later updated by Obama to include cell phones. This is the first time the system has been used. And obviously this raised a lot of concerns of what someone like Trump will do with the ability to reach every American via a text. 
AP reported that Trump's EPA is pursuing rule changes that would weaken the way radiation exposure is regulated. Honestly, you just can't make this stuff up. Breaking with decades of policy that there is no threshold of radiation exposure that is risk-free. The EPA cited a toxologist at the University of Massachusetts who said weakening limits on radiation exposure would save billions of dollars and that a lot of radiation damage is, a little radiation damage is good, just like a little bit of sunlight. Can't make this stuff up. On Thursday, Foreign Policy reported Trump is considering firing Air Force Secretary Heather Wilson over her pushback on his directive to set up a separate space force in the U.S. military. Sources say Wilson has not figured out a way to disagree with Trump, and he therefore permanently sees her as, quote, troublesome and ineffective. Trump will make his final decision on firing her after midterms. Well, it's a her and she disagrees, so we give her 10% chance. On Wednesday, an article in Conservative Federalists called on the Washington Post to stop labeling a conservative op-ed columnist Jennifer Rubin conservative because she's not a supporter of Donald Trump. So that's normal. On Thursday, the New York Times reported as Afghanistan phrase, mercenary executive Eric Prince has been the talk of Kabul and is frequently introduced as an advisor of Trump. Prince is pushing, again, we've talked about this in earlier lists, but now it seems to be coming back. He's pushing a vision that his contractors could offer an official military withdrawal for the U.S. from Afghanistan, even though that's not what Afghanistan wants. Prince has also tied his proposal to a favorite topic of Trump's, exploiting Afghanistan's mineral wealth, including rare earth deposits. Some officials in the Afghan government have tried to block Prince from getting visas. Okay, now back to the Kavanaugh nomination and Trump and his He Too movement. On Monday, and this is again similar to what Kavanaugh did last Thursday in the Senate hearings, on Monday at a press conference in the Rose Garden, Trump insulted ABC News reporter Cecilia Vega. After calling on her and thanking her, Trump said, quote, I know you're not thinking, you never do. This startled the country. On Tuesday, bowing to public scrutiny, the White House corrected a press conference transcript. The Monday version had read, I know you're not thinking, you never do. On Monday, Trump had also derided CNN reporter Caitlin Collins, wagging his finger and saying, don't do that, when she asked about Kavanaugh, and saying, you know what? You've really had enough. Hey, you've had enough. On Tuesday night at a rally in Mississippi, Trump attacked Democrats, who he said are holier than thou, and offering no proof, claimed one Senate Democrat drinks too much and encouraged the crowd to Google the senator's name. Trump also openly mocked Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, imitating her Senate testimony, saying, quote, I don't know. I don't know. Upstairs, downstairs, where was it? I don't know, but I had one beer. That's the only thing I remember. Trump also claimed because of the Me Too movement, men were going to be fired from their jobs after being unfairly accused of sexual harassment, saying, quote, think of your husbands, think of your sons. On Wednesday, the, these three swing Republicans, Flake, Collins, and Murkowski, criticized Trump for mocking Ford with his remarks, calling it, quote, kind of appalling by Flake, wholly inappropriate by Murkowski. Okay, now before we get back to the Kavanaugh nomination, I want to talk about some bombshells of reporting this week that hit and in the chaos got very little attention. On Tuesday, a bombshell year-long New York Times investigative report found that despite Trump campaign claims, that his father gave him one, a $1 million loan that he turned into an empire, Fred Trump actually gave Trump $61 million in loans. In total, Trump received the equivalent of $413 million in today's dollars from Fred Trump's real estate empire, much of it through dubious tax schemes during the 1990s, including instances of outright fraud. According to a deposition by Robert Trump, 
the Trumps used padded receipts to justify rent increases in rent-stabilized buildings. The higher the markup would be, the higher the rent that might be charged. These people are just despicable. In 1990, Donald Trump had one of his lawyers draft a codicil that would have changed his father's will because he only had given him $413 million. Fred Trump dispatched Trump's sister to find a new real estate attorney and then rewrote the will and signed it immediately. This guy is such a snake. On Tuesday, CNBC reported the New York State Tax Department is reviewing the allegations in the New York Times article and, according to an official, quote, is vigorously pursuing all appropriate avenues of investigation. On Wednesday, Trump tweeted about the article saying, quote, the failing New York Times and, quote, adding up this means that 97% of their stories on me are bad never recovered from bad election call. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported that if Democrats take control of the Senate in the midterms, Senator Ron Wyden, who would chair the Senate Finance Committee, plans to ask Trump for his tax returns. So that was all happening during the beginning of the week. Also on that theme, Trump dropped 11 more spots on the Forbes 400 list this week of richest, richest Americans. In the last two years, Trump's net worth has dropped from $4.5 billion in 2015 to $3.1 billion, dropping him from spot 121 to number 259. So he's dropped 138 spots in two years. Forbes noted that Trump is actively trying but failing to get rich off his presidency. The Trump brand has suffered. And deeper reporting has revealed that Trump has been lying about valuations. Shocking. And then more. Uh, On Thursday, AP reported experts say that although the Statue of Limitations has passed for criminal charges, Trump could be on the hook for tens of millions of dollars in civil fines from state and local authorities. Also on uh, this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Trump personally directed his then uh, attorney, Michael Cohen, in February 2018 to stop Stephanie Clifford from publicly discussing an alleged sexual encounter on 60 Minutes. And this is the first time we see Eric Trump brought into the fold. Trump told Cohen to seek a restraining order against Stephanie Clifford and to coordinate the legal response with Eric Trump and Jill Martin, an outside lawyer who represented Trump and the Trump Organization. It brings in the Trump Organization as well. Five days later, as instructed, Martin filed paperwork for a confidentiality for a confidential arbitration proceeding. An arbitration privately issued a restraining order against Clifford, who ignored it and went on television on 60 Minutes on March 25th. But there's more. On Thursday, New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood said in a court filing that Trump caused his charitable foundation to break state and federal laws governing nonprofits. Underwood wrote Trump's use of the Trump Foundation, quote, for his own personal benefit, justifies her request to ban him for 10 years from being involved in any non-for-profit. Now I want to talk about developments in Russia this week. On Monday, former FBI Director James Comey rejected a request by the House Judiciary Committee, Republicans, that's Devin Nunes and gang, to appear at a closed hearing on alleged political bias at the Department of Justice and FBI, saying he would appear but only in a public hearing. Politico reported on Monday that Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, met with special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Manafort's attorneys, Richard Wesling and Tom Zelny, were also seen speaking to one of Mueller's lead prosecutors, Andrew Weissman. On Tuesday, Politico reported Roger Stone associate Randy Critico told the Senate Intelligence Committee through his lawyers that he would plead the Fifth Amendment rather than testifying in the panel's Russia probe. On Tuesday, Politico did a lot of reporting this week on Russia. On Tuesday, Politico reported federal law enforcement officials referred a two-year-old email hack hacking investigation related to Sherry Jacobson, an anti-Trump Republican, to Mueller's team, which means potentially Russia was involved in that. 
On Tuesday, Politico reported Mueller is further downsizing his team of prosecutors. We don't know why. Um, and two are leaving to go back to their posts at the Justice Department. This will bring the number of attorneys from 17 at the peak down to 13. The other two were more junior level. But Van Greck, who played a role in the Virginia bank and tax fraud case, as well as Michael Flynn's guilty plea, is going back to his old post, as is um, Kyle Freeney, who has concluded her work here per, per Mueller's spokesperson. So we're not sure what that means yet, but it could mean that their work is coming to an end in the Mueller probe. So pay attention. On Thursday, the Department of Justice unveiled indictments against seven officers of Russia's GRU military intelligence agency who were targeting top Olympic athletes, anti-doping organizations, and chemical weapons monitors. The Department of Justice announced that in the summer of 2016, GRU hacked drug test results from the World Anti-Doping Agency and leaked confidential information about U.S. Olympic athletes on the internet. Three of the seven GRUs that were indicted were previously indicted for conspiring to interfere in the 2016 U.S. election as part of the Mueller probe. The Dutch and British government earlier on Thursday also described GRU attacks. We talked about this in the podcast a few weeks ago that the Dutch described a hack at a chemical weapons agency. We talked about that in in episode 12, week 92. Um, While the British government called the cyber attacks reckless and indiscriminate and talked about the many ways that Russia's GRU has been hacking their things that related in in Britain. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis told reporters in Brussels that the U.S. stands, quote, shoulder to shoulder with our NATO allies, different message than Trump, and pledged U.S. cyber offense capabilities to other allies if asked. On Thursday, the Daily Beast reported on another dead Russian. Russia Deputy Attorney General Sak Albertovich Karapetian. He died in a helicopter crash. Media reports claim the crash happened during an unauthorized flight, of course. Karapetian's ties to directing the foreign operations of Natalie Veselnitskaya were exposed in a Swiss court this year as part of their plot to enlist a Swiss law enforcement official as a double agent for the Kremlin. He and Veselnitskaya together tried to recruit a high-level law enforcement official who was supposed to be investigating the Swiss bank accounts of Russian oligarchs and mobsters. Venelnitskaya had helped to draft a document on behalf of the Russian government related to the fraud case against Prevnizone. And Karaptian had written the cover letter for that. So clearly there were links between these two. As you know, she was the Russian that was the face for the June 9th meeting in Trump Tower. And now that this was court case has established their connection. He mysteriously is yet another dead Russian dying of a helicopter crash. Now we're going to get back to the Kavanaugh nomination. On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported Republican senators emailed an explicit statement about Julia Swetnick's sex life to reporters to try to smear her. Swetnick's attorney, Michael Avenatti, says the FBI still refuses to interview her. On Tuesday, Majority Leader McConnell vowed to vote in the Senate on Kavanaugh's nomination this week, even as attorneys for Ford and others who have reached out to the FBI have not been interviewed. On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported the FBI has completed the first four interviews and is now interviewing Tim Gaudette and Chris Garrett, high school classmates of Kavanaugh. The investigation is being led by the FBI's Security Division, a branch that handles background checks. FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was two years behind Kavanaugh at Yale and also followed him to Yale Law School, is also directly involved in the investigation. On Tuesday, the New York Times obtained a 1983 letter written by Kavanaugh that contradicts his testimony before the Senate. In it, he writes, quote, warn the neighbors that were loud, obnoxious drunks with prolific pukers among us. 
Interviews with dozens of classmates and friends depict Kavanaugh as a member of a small clique of football players who celebrated a culture of heavy drinking, even by standards of that era, contradicting his testimony. On Wednesday, Rachel Maddow read a sworn affidavit from Elizabeth Razor, which the FBI neglected to take, saying Mark Judge had conveyed, quote, a degree of shame about taking turns having sex with a drunk woman. BuzzFeed reported ethics complaints have been filed against Kavanaugh in the D.C. Circuit Court, including at least one related to his alleged lying about sexual assault allegations against him. Ethics experts say there is no precedent for what happens to the complaints if he's elevated to the Supreme Court. On Wednesday, NBC News reported that according to multiple sources, more than 40 people with potential information into the sexual misconduct allegations against Kavanaugh have not been contacted by the FBI. On Wednesday, James Roach, Kavanaugh's freshman year roommate at Yale, said in an op-ed that Kavanaugh, quote, lied under oath about his drinking and the terms in his yearbook. The FBI has not contacted Roach at any time at any of their investigations, which again, his freshman year roommate, highly unusual. On Wednesday, an N. PR, PBS, Maris poll found that 45% of Americans believe Ford is telling the truth, up from 32% before her testimony. Just 33% believe Kavanaugh is telling the truth. On Wednesday, the National Council of Churches, the nation's largest coalition of Christian churches, said in a statement, quote, Kavanaugh has disqualified himself and, quote, must step aside immediately. On Wednesday, Ford's attorney wrote a letter to Chairman Grassley, again saying the FBI has not contacted them, despite Ford's desire to be interviewed in the probe. When asked about the limited scope of FBI interviews, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders blamed it on senators, telling reporters we're going to allow the senators to make a determination of the scope. Again, we know that's a lie. On Wednesday, Bloomberg reported the FBI lacks White House approval to interview Ford and Kavanaugh. Late Wednesday, McConnell started the clock for a Friday test vote on the nomination. Officials inside the FBI are concerned constraints placed on the investigation by Trump's White House could damage the Bureau's reputation for finding the truth. On Wednesday, the New York Times published an open letter by 650 law school professors in opposition to Kavanaugh's nomination. By Thursday, there were more than 2,400 signatures. So again, you see the buildup of people speaking out against him, the church, the professors in his field. Uh, These stories continue to build. On Wednesday, more than 1,000 Maine academics signed a letter urging Senator Collins not to support Kavanaugh, citing credible allegations of sexual misconduct and an angry demeanor at the Senate hearings. On Thursday, the White House issued a statement at around 2.30 a.m. in the middle of the night, saying the FBI completed its work and the materials were being conveyed to Capitol Hill in the middle of the night. Deputy Press Secretary Raj Shah said Thursday morning falsely, quote, this is the last addition to the most comprehensive review of a Supreme Court nominee in history. The public was not allowed to see the FBI report. Only senators were permitted to review the materials. Although the FBI was given a week to complete their investigation, they stopped after just five days. Senator's review took place in a secured room in the Capitol starting Thursday morning. Republican senators were permitted to see the information first. Time was limited to allow for a vote on Friday. On Thursday, the Wall Street Journal reported the White House believes the FBI report has no corroboration of sexual misconduct allegations against Kavanaugh. That's what they told the Wall Street Journal. The New York Times reported as part of the inquiry, the FBI contacted 10 people and interviewed nine of them. Washington Post reported that it could confirm only six people. So again, that's the confusion in reporting I was referencing at the open. The FBI has not publicly explained why it stopped after talking to just five or more people, nor did the Bureau explain why they did not interview Ford or Kavanaugh. 
The Senate Judiciary Committee tweeted, quote, nowhere in any of these six FBI reports reviewed on a bipartisan basis is anything related in any way to inappropriate sexual or alcohol abuse. Senator Dick Durbin responded in a tweet saying, this tweet, the one I just mentioned, is not accurate. And in a letter, insinuated previous background checks of Kavanaugh had in fact turned up evidence of inappropriate sexual behavior or alcohol abuse. Late Thursday, Senator Elizabeth Warren said on the Senate floor that the FBI reports show there was not a full and fair investigation. Instead, she said it was sharply limited in scope and did not explore the relevant confirming facts. Senator Warren also said the invaluable documents do not exonerate Kavanaugh and that the documents contradict statements Kavanaugh made under oath at the Senate hearings. But again, the public didn't see any of these documents, so we don't know. We can only, you know, get leaks from both sides and try to make our best guess. But we do know that very few were interviewed, over 40 that wanted to be interviewed were not, and that screaming inside my head, Ford and Kavanaugh were not interviewed. On Thursday, Thousands protested Kavanaugh's nomination outside the courthouse where Kavanaugh works at the Supreme Court and at two Senate office buildings. Protesters chant, we believed survivors. The U.S. Capitol Police said 302 people were arrested in two Senate office buildings, including actresses Amy Schumer, who said, quote, a vote for Kavanaugh is a vote is a vote saying women don't matter. And the story... This week, the weekly list, if you look at the website on theweeklylist.org, the picture that accompanies this week is protesters who are marching. On Thursday, Jen Klaus, the former roommate of Ramirez, told NBC News committee staff members called her at 4.30 p.m. Thursday, put her on speakerphone, and asked about Ramirez's drinking habits at Yale. Klaus said the staffers also suggested it was a case of mistaken identity again, saying it gave me the impression they were suggesting perhaps it was another classmate who threw his penis in her face instead of Brett. Same strategy they used with Ford. And this is, you know, we talked about earlier the texts before the New York story. Here's another classmate. This classmate, Kathy Charlton, told NBC News she tried to contact the FBI also about text messages she received from a mutual friend of Kavanaugh ahead of the Ramirez story breaking. Charlton said three days prior to the New Yorker story, in a phone conversation, the former classmate told Kavanaugh, had called him and advised him not to say anything bad if the press were to call. After she spoke to a reporter, a friend text that friend texted Charleston saying, hell, don't fucking tell people Brett got in touch with me. I told you at the time that was in confidence on cap letters. We have the actual text in that story. Both Charlton and Carrie Burcham made numerous attempts to get in touch with the FBI, but did not hear back. Those are both people that have seen texts ahead of the testimony, which shows that Kavanaugh lied when he said to the Senate panel the first time he heard about the Ramirez story was by reading The New Yorker. Burcham told NBC News on Thursday she sent her third email to Mike Davis, the chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. She spoke briefly to a staffer on October 3rd and heard nothing back. On Thursday, speaking to a crowd of retirees in Florida, retired, and this is a big one, retired U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, who is also a Republican, said Kavanaugh does not belong on the Supreme Court, saying he lacks the temperament. On Thursday, Kavanaugh wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal defending himself as an independent impartial judge and explaining his behavior at last week's Senate hearing as being emotional as a son, husband, and dad. And the reason that op-ed is important and the fact that it came out Thursday is it signified at that point the Republicans didn't know, McConnell did not know as he was bringing up the vote the next morning if he had the votes and if the three Republicans who had been on the fence were going to come and vote for Kavanaugh. And then it continued late Thursday, the Washington Post editorial board urged senators to vote no on Kavanaugh, citing his partisan instincts. This is the first time the Post has called for a no vote since 1987. 
on Thursday, what did rally? What did Trump do that night? He was at a rally in Minnesota and he was mocking Al Franken, who resigned over sexual assault allegations, saying that Franken, quote, folded like a wet rag, wet rag and mocked Franken. Oh, I, he did something. Oh, I resigned. I quit. That's the head of our country. On Friday morning, as we were heading into this vote, the American Bar Association said in a letter that its standing committee on the federal judiciary has reopened its evaluation of Kavanaugh in light of its testimony before the Senate last week. An ABA spokesperson said the committee did not expect to complete its evaluation ahead of Friday's voting. So the associations of, of the association's assessment of Kavanaugh as well-qualified stands but it must be read in conjunction with the foregoing. Also on Friday morning, Senator Grassley was asked on Fox Business by host Maria Bartiromo if George Soros was behind the protesters who confronted Jeff Flake last week in the elevator. And Grassley said, quote, I tend to believe it. And then on Friday morning, Trump tweeted attacks on survivors who had protested saying, quote, the very rude Elevator screamers are paid professionals only looking to make senators look bad. He also tweeted, look at all the professionally made identical signs paid for by Soros and others. These are not signs made in the basement from love troublemakers. And that led to a whole chorus of people blaming Soros, which of course is an anti-Semitic reference, but that happened as the week came to a close. Um, Hundreds of female attorneys in Alaska said in a letter to Senator Murkowski to vote no. And then other Alaskans who are survivors flew into Washington, D.C. to meet with her Thursday. As we opened Friday morning, Murkowski said she would vote no on closure. So that left us all day waiting to hear at three o'clock from Senator Susan Collins. If because Flake in the meantime said he was voting yes. So if Collins said no, it probably meant she and Manchin would the Democrat would go along with Murkowski and Heidi Heitkamp, who the day before had said she was voting no, and that would mean a no vote. So everyone was on pins and needles for this speech at three o'clock, which seemed to be a pre-Witten speech because it lasted for 44 minutes by Collins on the Senate floor. Behind her were seated three of the three other Republican women senators who are also voting yes. There's only five Republican women senators. Three of them were behind Collins as she spoke, as if that was at all reflective of the people involved in this whole process. But she voted, she announced she was voting yes in this long, fiery speech. And she, um, before she even started, there were protesters yelling, vote no, show up for Maine women. Afterwards, she got a standing ovation from Speaker McConnell. In her speech, Collins blasted Democrats and progressive organizations and cited an oft-used GOP trope that she believed that Ford was sexually assaulted but did not believe her recollection that it was Kavanaugh. Minutes after Collins' speech, a crowdfunding site where activists have been raising money to defeat Collins in 2020 was inundated with pledges and crashed. The site raised more than $3 million. On Friday, when asked by reporters why there were no Republican women on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Grassley cited the workload as a deterrent. He said, quote, it's a lot of work. Maybe they don't want to do it. Grassley added, quote, my chief of staff for 33 years tell me they've tried to re he's tried to recruit women and we couldn't get the job done. Grassley later returned to clarify that the workload made it less appealing to both genders. So just disgusting sexism this week. Just out there right in the front, like in the light of day. Women were outraged. I mean, the outrage was building this whole week. It just got worse and worse as it went on. On Friday, the New York Times reported, and this kind of tied everything together, that in the beginning of the week that Trump had called McGahn, his White House counsel, to tell him the FBI should be able to investigate anything before they, in order to make the critics stop. But McGahn reportedly responded that a wide-ranging inquiry, like some of the Democrats were demanding, would potentially be disastrous for Kavanaugh's chances of being confirmed, which leads us all to wonder what we were missing. Late Friday, Ford's 
attorney criticized the investigation in a statement saying, quote, an investigation that did not include the interviews of Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh is not a meaningful investigation in any sense of the word. Experts say it was highly unusual for the FBI not to conduct these interviews with one expert calling it indefensible not to interview Ford. Investigators also did not review her polygraph results or therapist notes. On Saturday, anti-Kavanaugh protests continued with hundreds protesting and more arrests. And then on Saturday, right before the confirmation vote, the Washington Post reported that Chief Justice John Roberts has received more than a dozen judicial misconduct complaints in recent weeks on Kavanaugh, but chose not to refer them to a judicial panel. Judge Karen LaCraft Henderson, a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, said the court which Kavanaugh served passed complaints to the court, to the Supreme Court received starting three weeks ago. Kavanaugh dismissed other claims as frivolous. In a statement Saturday, she said the complaints centered on statements Kavanaugh made during his Senate hearings, questioning his honesty and temperament. This is the first time in history that a Supreme Court nominee has been poised to join the court while a fellow judge recommends that misconduct claims against a nominee warrant review by the Chief Justice. On Saturday, Kavanaugh was confirmed by a 50 to 48 vote along party lines with the exception of Democrat Joe Manchin, who voted yes, and Senator Murkowski, who voted present in order to have him avoid the embarrassment of winning by only one vote. The last time that happened and, on, and his margin to vote is the lowest in modern history, but the only time it has been lower was in 1881 when Stanley Matthews was confirmed 24 to 23. So that's how long it's been since somebody has done as poorly in the Senate as Kavanaugh. And I might note that the Republicans are in control of the Senate. There was a four vote difference when Anita Hill spoke out against Clarence Thomas, but at that point, Democrats were in control of the Senate. And finally, some good notes, news I just wanna close out with all this outrage and where it's headed. The state of Texas set a new voter registration record with 15.6 million new registered voters ahead of the hotly contested midterm race between incumbent Senator Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. Election records show the state has added 400,000 voters since March alone. The state on average added, added just 100,000 voters a year between 2002 and 2014. So that's historic. On National Voter Registration Day, a record 800,000 voters registered ahead of midterms. The campaign's initial aim was to add 300,000 votes voters. So we are headed into uh, uncharted territories again, a, a redo of 1991 on steroids, perhaps. But the other takeaway that was super important this week is where we started with the Marsha Gessen article talking about not only appointing an extremist, but in doing so, hurting the credibility through the process of appointing that extremist, hurting the credibility of another institution, in this case, the Supreme Court. So we'll watch what happens in the coming weeks. We are less than a month away from midterms. Those happen November 6, uh, 30 days from now. So until then, stay in touch. If you like this podcast, please share it on Twitter and Facebook. And don't forget to rate it and give it a review. We'll talk to you next week.